Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. So interesting today. I've never met anyone with a word Cree in the name, Mark Cree Jackson. So that's got to be first questions, right? I told you, Adam, everybody that comes from the University of Texas, Austin, has a unique name. Zoltan Nagy, right? Exactly. We have another guest to make you right. <laughs> I love that university. So over the years, I've had a chance sitting at the back of the ASHRAE SSPC 62 meeting. For those that don't know what that is, that's a standing standards project committee at ASHRAE, listening to our guest today talk about indoor air quality and ventilation in the residential buildings. And he's contributed much to the dialogue. And I was always impressed with his knowledge and his communication style and his uh, life story. So we wanted to get him on the show. Welcome to the show, Mark Cree Jackson. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Mark, to say that your life has been inspiring is would probably be an understatement. You've done some really interesting things over your career that I, I love. And I think the students that listen to the program and the families that are supporting them will also find it inspiring. You spent almost a year in New Zealand as a foreign exchange student. Like, So think about that, right? As a teenager, right? Right. You know, a, a year on your own. I think you went through four families. Was that because you were invited to leave after the, <laughs> or that was part of the schedule? You can tell you can tell us about you can tell us about that. You went on to earn your bachelor and master's in engineering from Purdue, if I got that right, and then went on to get a master's in business. And then for giggles, right, <laughs> you decided to go and get your doctorate degree, University of Texas at Austin, later on in life, and. Since that time, you've just been sharing your knowledge and learning as much as you can. And I think it's a great story. So why don't you tell us what you're all about? Well, thank you very much. I just have a real passion for indoor air quality, and I'll, I'll get to where that came from. But back in New Zealand, it was a foundational year for my life. I grew up in West Lafayette, Indiana. My dad taught at Purdue and so forth. And I was offered a Rotary Exchange scholarship to go to New Zealand my senior year in high school. So I thought that was wonderful. So I went down under, saw the Kiwis, actually held a Kiwi at, at one point. I don't know <laughs> if you can do that anymore. And had a wonderful, transformative year at the Fielding Agricultural High School in Fielding, New Zealand, which is on the North Island. And because I was a Rotary Exchange student, everyone took me all over the place. And from the very end of New Zealand on Stewart Island, where I held the Kiwi, up to the very north end where you have the 90-mile beach you can drive along. It was just a wonderful year. I met a lot of fantastic people, some of which I still keep track of. I lived with four different families. They may have gotten tired of me after you know, <laughs> three or four months, but the idea was that each host family would host a student for several months. And then you'd move on to another family. And this way, you got exposed to four different families and different styles of living. So it was very educational. My mom was able to come over, and we did a couple-week bus tour throughout the New Zealand on one of the breaks. When I got back home and I held the door for her for her to get in the car, she almost fainted. <laughs> 
I actually grew up and became a gentleman when living in New Zealand. <laughs> I was just absolutely shocked. <laughs> My folks said, hey, you can go to whatever college you want. You know, I don't care. We don't care. But, you know, we're going to pay what it cost us to send you to Purdue, which was like $200 a semester because my dad worked there. And I went, hmm, uh, this is a hard choice. (laughs) So I headed off to Purdue, started in chemical engineering. I wanted to uh, do a pre-med program. I ran into physical chemistry and that ended that desire. (laughs) And then I had quite an adventure going through college. They asked me to leave after four years without a degree because I had been doing other social activities, shall we say. And, uh, and then I went down to uh, the University of Florida for two quarters, and then they allowed me to come back, but they wouldn't let me back into chemical engineering. They wouldn't let me back in mechanical engineering. They'd only let me back into interdisciplinary engineering. And the head of the department, I, I sat down with him and said, Mark, I have no idea why you're here. It is not my choice to allow you to come in, but I was directed by the dean of students that you're coming back. And let me assure you, if you screw up one more time, you will never get a degree in engineering from Purdue and likely nowhere else. Uh, So the operative word there is disciplinary. Disciplinary, yes. But the nice thing about this is, even when you have challenges in college, and even are asked to leave, you still can come back and make a living for yourself and have a fairly successful career. Of course, the magic to all this was my wife. I got married before I got, came back, and that was a very stabilizing influence on my life. She is a saint. We've been married for almost 42 years. Wow, How she yeah. stuck with me that long, as you'll hear <laughs> shortly, is just amazing. But that is wonderful. So having a wonderful spouse in one's life is incredibly important for not only your personal life, but your professional life. So anyway, I wanted to go into, uh, I changed directions and wanted to go into solar energy. And when I got my bachelor's degree, I went, oh, maybe I should go to Arizona and do solar there. And then I found out that the mechanical engineering department had a very good energy program. So I thought I'd try for that. One of the the fights that my wife and I had, there was also actually coffee thrown around the room in this this particular one because I said, there's no way I'm ever going to be able to get into a master's program and get funded, you know, with my academic record. And she, of course, said, well, of course you can. And I I just was very upset. Turns, (laughs) Turns out I did get a full ride scholarship to go into the master's program and I worked on reaction kinetics of benzene in a hydrogen-oxygen flame. It was a combustion diagnostics lab. So there was a lot of chemistry involved, a lot of reaction chemistry. I'm not a chemist, but I dabble in the area. I've taken a lot of chemistry classes. I took physical chemistry three times. Just to make sure. (laughs) Just just to try to get a C. I, I have no desire to do physical chemistry again, but it was a an interesting experience and persistence and determination. <laughs> so, so in my um, master's program at Purdue, I, I did do reaction kinetics and I worked on a mass spectrometer and so forth. And I actually burned up the mass, mass spectrometer. It, <laughs> oh it overheated, it destroyed the thing. 
And my prof has gone, this is not good, you know? <laughs> no, because really, they're worth a lot of money. <laughs> we only have, well, it was a used one that got it out of the uh, used storage at Purdue, but it was, it was not good. So I was over at my buddy's house and I had my feet up on his coffee table and I was just bemoaning the fact that I had just ruined my <laughs> academic career because I had destroyed this, <laughs> this gas chromatograph. And, and he says, well, what happened? Well, the oven burned out and the gas chromatograph is fried. And he says, well, do you need another one? I went, yeah. He said, well, your feet are on it. And, and this guy, he, he went to salvages, salvage yards and so forth. And he just collected stuff. And he had a blanket over this coffee table. Turned out it was gas chromatic. So I went, went back and brought this in. The prof thought I was a hero because I'd been able to recover from this disaster. And then I continued on. And he's going, you know, if you're going to restart all this research, you know, it's going to take you another year or so to do this. And I'm like, yeah, but I've got to get it right. You know, I've got to actually contribute something here. So it, it took me four years to get out of my master's. It had taken seven to get through my bachelor's degree. My view has always been that a, an education is like wine. The longer it's aged, the better, <laughs> as long as I'm not paying for it, right? So with, with our sons, I said, okay, you got four years, you know, maybe a fifth if there's, you know, a really challenging situation. But so they, they got out in, in record time. <laughs> so it was, and, and while I was in graduate school, you know, I, I couldn't get bored and I really wanted to be in solar energy. I started my own consulting business. And this was back in the days of uh, Jimmy Carter when there were tax credits and so forth. Right. And I con consulted for a, a financial group in Indianapolis on concentrating photovoltaic collectors. And it turned out that I learned a very valuable lesson. There was a group out in California that had floating photovoltaic collectors on these big ponds that would rotate to track the sun. It was really interesting way of tracking the sun and then concentrate the sunlight down onto very small solar cells so that the expensive part was, you know, just had a little bit of it. And then Fresnel lenses to do the concentrating onto the cells on point source. And the financier that had been there, he'd been out there and he was so impressed with this facility that he was selling this to everybody. I sold it to some friends of mine, $5,000 chunks at a time. Then I went, you know, maybe I should really go out and take a look at this thing. <laughs> so my wife and I flew out to California when our son was, I don't know, about eight months old or so. And he was staying with a babysitter, good friends of ours. Not sure I would do that again and, and leave an infant that young for a week. But we went out there and we drove all over California and we drove to this facility and, and saw these. They, they took us on a tour, a little golf court around the manufacturing plant. No, it looked interesting, but I, I didn't see a whole lot in that manufacturing plant. And then we went out to the desert to see these ponds. And they were so surprised that we showed up because most people didn't bother to come out. They just looked at the videos and invested money. And, you know, it was about four in the afternoon. Well, it's been shut off for the day. I'm like, the sun's still out, you know? <laughs> and, and then we went up and then I looked in, in the, the Fresnel lenses and there were no solar cells at the bottom. <laughs> oh, well, well, you know, manufacturing is behind. So we've put these out so we can get our tax credits and then we'll put the solar cells in next year. <laughs> and I went, oh. <laughs> So... <laughs> 
the lesson so, learned is when you're looking at new, especially new technologies, show up. Yeah. Go look. Yeah. Hold it in your hands. Test yeah. it yourself. Is it really true? So then I went back and I, I remember sitting across the table from a travel agent that was a, a friend of ours who was ready to invest $15,000 in this. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't take your money. Yeah. <laughs> and another dear friend, I ended up having to pay them back. It was a very interesting learning experience. So I learned uh, two things there. One thing was when you're looking at technologies, make sure you really check them out. Just don't see videos. Those are nice. They're informative. You want to see peer-reviewed papers. That's nice. That's helpful. But show up, touch, feel, try it yourself. Make sure it works. So due diligence on the technical side. And the second side is you've got to have the financial side or nothing happens. You can build the best mousetrap, but if there's no financing for it, it won't happen. So having a business degree is a good thing, which is what I ended up getting later. So hang on, you got a bachelor's, a master's, a business degree, and a PhD? Yes. Is that enough? Uh, <laughs> my, my wife assures me that she, since she has been with, with me through four degrees, my PhD was my terminal degree. And if I decided that I was going to try for another one, I would be terminated. So, <laughs> now, that, that doesn't mean I can't take senior classes and those types of things and audit a class here and there. but. That hasn't presented itself yet. So what made you do a PhD? I mean... My daddy had one. That's, oh, it's a daddy issue. Too, it? It's a daddy issue. <laughs> you know, that's, people go, why do you want to... Because I wanted to learn more about indoor air quality. That's very true. But why did I have to get a PhD? Because my daddy had one. And from the time I was six years old, I was going to be called Dr. Jackson at some point in my life. <laughs> now, for all those people who have that desire, I highly recommend you go get that degree in your 20s and 30s, not waking up on your 50th birthday and say, I got to have one and, <laughs> and applying, applying to grad school on your 50th birthday and then taking 10 years to get the degree. <laughs> and I did get the degree. I was working and, and consulting during that time. And I kept adding things on to the dissertation. One hashtag goals, respect. <laughs> yeah, totally, right? <laughs> <laughs> So my big thing when I got my bachelor's, so I did technical college, I did a bachelor's, and I thought, if I survive this, it'll be awesome. Then you get it. You think, okay, maybe I get a master's. Then you get that. And I always had this, went through with both my degrees. Like I got it. There was this like one 24-hour period of euphoria. Then you're still the same. I was still the same asshole I was before I started it, right? <laughs> and then, same with my master's. And then, you know, I could not have done a PhD. You couldn't have paid me a million dollars to do that thing. No way. How so the guy, I'm, the guy I'm keeping my eye on, and you know him, Mark, is, is Andy Osk, who just went, he, I think he's the oh, yes. and he yeah. just got his master's degree. Sure as hell, I bet, and we should try to get Andy on. Sure as hell, I bet he's going to go after his PhD. Like, why not, right? That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. <laughs> how, did you, how did you feel, though? So you started at 50, you graduated at 60. I mean, you're yes. working during it. Yes. So, Did you get that I'm enough now feeling? (laughs) Well, I turned in the dissertation. All the edits were done. And I said, okay, now you're going to review all this to make sure the format's correct. And he said, I've done that. And I said, so what's next? He says, you're done. I went outside on the lawn. I called my wife. I was going to say something smart and erudite about now it's Dr. (laughs) Jackson. And all I did is 
she answered and I cried. Yeah. One of the first I was times. Say I that, mean, it man. was it was just such a relief to be done with that. Was your Mount Everest, right? That was by Mount Everest, and I achieved it. You know, what you should have done. You should have phoned up your wife and gone. Dr. Jackson for Mrs. Jackson, will you hold? <laughs> I, I, I probably said something like that. This is Dr. Jackson, and then I just burst into tears. <laughs> Another fun, funny story along that way, I took my prelims and so forth, and my wife's a physical therapist, and she was with one of her patients in her home doing physical therapy, and I called up when I had learned that I actually passed the, the prelims. And my wife gets off the phone and says, oh, my husband passed. And the woman says, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and it's like, hey, no, 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 it's died. It's passed this big exam. And so it, it's been interesting. Uh, so I'll it's been a, I told my wife when we got married, I said, life with me will not be boring. <laughs> so I, I want to go back to, I got the master's degree and I got, a dream job based on this consulting that I've been doing, financing and solar. And I, I discovered a, a company in Texas that had concentrating photovoltaic technology that really worked. It was the highest efficiency in the world, both terrestrially and extraterrestrially on space stations. I told them, I'm coming to work for you. And they said, well, we really like what you've done because I worked with them to try to get a big project in California, which didn't happen, but they enjoyed that. And they said, well, we don't have any money. And I said, I'll come to work for free for a year because I just want to do this. And my wife had said she would support us for a year, one year, for me to pursue my dream of solar energy. So then they, they said, okay, well, come on down. We'll, and they found some money and they, they paid me <laughs> very low rate <laughs> for my education. But it was what I wanted to do and it was a dream. And I stuck with that for 11 years. My wife's going, you know, Maybe it's time you actually went out and made some real money. <laughs> that was a wonderful thing. And my mission in the world in the late 80s and early 90s was to help solarize the world, reduce all the dependence on fossil fuels. I would go around and give talks about putting a gigawatt of photovoltaics in the Tibetan plains and hobnobbing with the monks. People thought I had lost my mind. They thought I was completely insane. Of course, now, tens of gigawatts a year of photovoltaics are being installed annually, and the solar revolution is, is really coming along. I was yeah. just, you know, 20-some years early. Early. <laughs> I was going to ask you, do you feel you were early to the game? You were, by the sounds of things, right? I, I've been early to everything except getting the degrees. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and so for our listeners, then you went on to go work for two of the biggest companies biggest brand names that people recognize, Lennox and Daikin. Yes. And from those, of course, you've contributed much to the whole field of indoor air quality. What most people don't know is why I did that. When I was 31, I was diagnosed with severe chemical sensitivity. I had had dust mold pollen allergies since I was six and asthma and so forth. And, you know, I wasn't the healthiest youngster or young, young adult, but I wasn't horrible. I just took allergy shots for 20 or 30 years. But then I cratered when I was 31. Part of it was I was doing some quality control inspection on these photovoltaic cells, and I put it off to the very end of the day because you'd touch them underneath, and they had silver on there. And I was very sensitive to silver, which I didn't know 
We also had methylene chloride in the manufacturing process, and it was below OSHA limits, but that doesn't mean it was good for you. I also had mercury fillings as a child, and, and that certainly was a big contaminant. Anyway, it all cratered. I went to see a, a specialist in Dallas, referred to from my allergist up in Indiana, but he said, you know, he's one of those clinical ecologists, so you better be careful because he really thinks the environment can do everything to you. And I went in and did testing with him and went into anaphylactic shock and all those sorts of things. I lost 20, 30 pounds. I couldn't pour the milk for our kids because I was so sensitive to the milk. I would fall down. I would fall down when I'd see orange lights to the ground. Therefore, I couldn't drive. It was a very trying time. This went on for about a year, and the doctor pulls my wife and I in and says, you know, uh, is your life insurance up to date? Are your affairs in order? And I'm going, well, you could have told me this six months ago when I might have been able to get more life insurance. (laughs) And they said he'd done everything that he could do. And he sent me to a very non-traditional type of person who was an energy healer person. And she saved my life. And from someone who is technically trained, that's way out there, right? Yeah. But I discovered an entirely different realm of existence. And she saved my life. I came back, you know, I still am very sensitive to things, but, you know, I've traveled all over the world. When I travel outside of North America, I always take someone with me because I have trouble walking and will fall quickly, you know, if a diesel truck goes by and so forth. So I, I need someone that kind of is a bodyguard. So my wife has done that, and both of my sons have done that, and some of my colleagues have been my bodyguards when I travel overseas. That's kind of the impetus to get me interested from solar, which I was, I was 100% solar. That was my mission in life. But then I had said a prayer. I said, God, if I'm to go on the wrong way, take a two by four and knock me upside the head. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> he, he did. That's a, that's a very, you know, you want to be very careful what you ask for because you might get it. <laughs> so I got the two by four knocked up cross side my head and it changed my entire life. It changed my career direction. It helped me become an expert in the field of indoor environmental equality. And I've been able to help others because of that. And we moved into a house that was, you know, about 40 years old. And I learned a lot from that house. One of the things I learned was back in the early 50s, concrete slabs, tar, two by fours, tar paper, beautiful hardwood floor, right? Well, having all that tar in the air was not so good. Having pesticides sprayed throughout the house that were still there 30 years later, that's not so good for one's health. The carpet that had been in the house and had captured things grew nasty stuff. This was in Texas, so of course there was high humidity. A buddy of mine came down because the doctor had said, hey, you're going to have to throw everything out in your house that is contributing to your chemical sensitivity. So we started, my buddy came down, we pulled the carpet back, and I just kept right on going backwards because of all the junk on really the Everything came out. My wife and my buddy dragged me out in the front yard and they said, sit, stay. Like I was going to go anywhere because I couldn't walk. And uh, they went back in and they trashed the house. They ripped out all the carpet. They took out all the beds that had foam in it. We had Lazy Boy recliners. You know, we'd arrived in middle life. So we had two Lazy Boy recliners. <laughs> and I, I would come home after a hard day's work, right? My wife came home after a hard day's work, and we had two little kids. I would lay down in my Lazy Boy recliner, and in five minutes, I was gone because I was drugged by 
<laughs> the fumes coming out of the foam. She was not happy. So all that went out. All of our bookshelves that were made of press wood, they went out. All the chemicals and paint that we had in the house, all that went out. We ended up sleeping on a cotton mattress pad in our in our bedroom, which was the only thing in the bedroom. Everything else had been removed, including all the clothes and so forth, into another room until we got an organic cotton mattress and so forth and was able to sleep on that. My yeah. allergist from Indiana, 20 years before, had said, hey, you got to have one of these foam pillows that's anti-allergenic, right? <laughs> you need to have this and sleep on it every night. So I went, yes, sir. And I carried that thing around the world with me. And it turns out that it was drugging me at night. And I was always wondering why I slept so soundly to the point that to get up in the morning, my wife would literally push me out of the bed onto the floor because I was so drugged by this phone. And once we figured that out, now I like to tell people, you know, if you have a pillow and you've been breathing in it with all that micro environment of of high humidity dust mites love it you know and they reproduce like crazy because it's over 50 percent relative humidity and they're pooping all over your pillow so basically you're sleeping with your head in the toilet now i know (laughs) back in college that was a common occurrence for some people but it's really not preferred Uh, so it took me 15 years to figure this out but you take a cotton pillow fold it up shove it in a, a cotton pillowcase and sleep on that, wash it in hot water, you know, once a week and kills off the, the dust mites and you're no longer sleeping in the toilet. Life yeah. is much better when you get your head out of the toilet. Um, <laughs> the Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless increase efficiency, and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners, adapting to your workflows and processes, and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows and Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. And now, back to the show. Back this is going back now, I think, close to 20 years. And I did a year-long literature review in preparation for writing the HRAI of Canada's Indoor Air Quality course. And during that literature review, I happened to come across a lady by the name of Karen Somerville, Dr. Karen Somerville. And, you know, much like yourself, she was smart, educated. She was also a marathon runner. They built a house in Ottawa and moved into it only to find mold starting to grow and crippled her. You know, so this was somebody that was, and I learned from that whole experience of, of reading case studies and reading the literature. Canada at the time, had CMHC had published Chemical Sensitivity, a housing guide. And I began to realize very quickly that a lot of the housing industry don't recognize just how prevalent this is. Right. And that 
people that experience these sensitivities, it's their experience. And I found during that, that whole year, many people say, well, it's in your head. Like you said, like, you know, you think you're, these people are whacked up, but it's not. And I have much respect for those individuals who don't live with it. They do something about it. And many of them in their experience of doing something about it become educators about environments and the health of the environment, how important that is. You went also on to do something very interesting is you did something to do with the QEEG, the qualitative electrocephalograms, I think it's, is that right? Yes. Yeah. I did some QEEG work. I was a patient and, and had that done. So that was a neurofeedback, put things on your head and so forth and checking your brain waves and so forth and then modifying them by looking at a screen and playing video games. And I was able to eliminate a sensitivity to the glue that they use to glue these onto your head because the first time the right. guy put that on, I had a significant reaction and, and he went, oh, <laughs> that's not so good. So we worked on that. And then one day I was in there six months later and, and he got automatically grabbed the stuff and put it on and then he realized what he'd done and it was like, I'm just going to keep right on going because he hasn't fallen over yet. And, <laughs> and I was good. And it, the work had actually been helpful in, in changing that. Unfortunately, it didn't change it for all my sensitivities, but it did for several of them. Yeah, and, and what uh, I like about that technology is that, and for those that, you know, have different diagnoses that haven't been validated, when I think like, for example, ADHD, right? So lots of kids that get diagnosed, they get on the medications, and in fact, they don't actually have it. And for those that aren't familiar with the technology, you know, there's a global database of brain signatures that have been produced by this technology. And so you can actually go in and you can look at it and say, well, this is the typical brain signature of somebody that has attention deficit disorder. And so your child or your the individual, the adult, getting one of these tests done and checking it against the database can either validate or reject the diagnosis and find out where, where the other issues are coming from. So I, you know, there's a lot of technologies that are out there that aren't readily available to society because they don't know about it. Right. Yeah. I've tried many different technologies and my theory has been, let's think about it. What research has been done on it? Is it going to hurt me? If not, let's try it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, go on to the next thing. So you try many different things. Your life has actually been a series of A-B testing for IEQ technology, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I had two other major drivers. I have two sons. One had severe asthma and croup and so forth, and he ended up in the hospital at four or five in an oxygen tent. Anyone who has ever gone through that would do anything to avoid that again. Yeah. So that was another spark to clean up the house and put in the HEPA filtration and ventilation, dehumidification, UV lights on the coils and all that sort of stuff. And he, he definitely improved. The other son, our, my oldest son, was in third grade and he flunked out. An engineer dude, like, you know, oh my God, he'll never be able to support himself. The world is coming to an end. And, but I went, you know, it's a new school. They, they just added this wing and they didn't do a real good job. And it smells when I walk in there and I kind of stumble around. So maybe there's an environmental factor. And we worked with the doc. I walked in the school with two four-inch binders of research and so forth and a big letter from a, a well-known doctor. And they went, oh, are we going to get sued? They didn't say that, but they were very attentive to yeah. me. And I said, let me clean up his classroom. So we cleaned the, the carpet with safe cleaning supplies. 
I wanted to clean the ducts at that point. That was a big deal. And I said, let me get somebody to come. Oh, no, no, we'll use our own people. And I walked in, I fell on the floor and I said, I know exactly who you used. (laughs) And they went, how did you know that? Well, till I fell over and they had sprayed some sealant on the ductwork. And then they said, well, I said, now can I fix the ducts? And they said, oh yeah, fine. So we <clears> took <throat> them out, cleaned them all out, got it all cleaned up. We brought in outdoor air, which they didn't have, even though right. they had the ability to do that. We put in better filtration. I got a room HEPA carbon air cleaner, but it was too loud. So I had to build a funnel, sound dampening. Silencer. Funnel, silencer out of organic cotton, blanket covers and so forth. And it worked. And my son had flunked out because of math scores. And I had also started working with the Texas Department of Health on their IAQ task force for schools. And we came out with recommendations for all the schools in Texas to improve indoor air quality based on this work. And the assistant superintendent of our school district, uh, he got on to give the school's perspective. And we did a lot of work. Well, about three years later, my son you know, was doing pretty well. He'd gotten past third grade, his math scores, which had flunked out of, he was below 50 percentile or whatever. He got above the 95th percentile. They put him in the gifted and talented program in fifth grade. The assistant superintendent came to that. That was one of his tasks. And he saw me there and he, he walks over and he says, Mark, I hate to ask this, but why are you here? You know, like your kid's a moron, you know, (laughs) what are you doing in a gifted and talented class? I said, well, Jack, that's because of all that great work you did in cleaning up the school district, you know, and cleaning up Eric's classroom. You know, those are the rewards, right? It was our child that was really impacted, but we impacted all the other kids in that school district. And because of that, it impacted kids throughout Texas because of the guidelines. And then those guidelines a couple years later became guidelines for all state buildings. I even had a call from somebody in Australia about what are these guidelines things? And so I sent them to them. So it it may have actually helped some of the the folks over in Australia. And all that was pro bono work while I was doing solar energy stuff. But I went to a a conference and there was a trade show there and I was helping the doctor's booth on chemical sensitivity and so forth. And I was standing in line, the lunch line, talking to this guy and what he said, oh, what do you do? I went, oh, indoor air quality. It's really exciting stuff. And he was just like, that's really interesting. And he said, well, he was from Lennox and they were actually looking for someone as an IAQ engineer. And did I know that they had a job? I said, no. He said, well, we're in the booth right next to you and we have the sign up there. We went back and the sign had been turned around so that nobody knew. So I'm calling my wife and going, send me my resume. You know, <laughs> And sent them the resume and they invited me to come and give them a talk. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm really happy in solar. I really like what I'm doing, but I'll, I'll come and, and give some suggestions for indoor air quality. So I went and talked to them and so forth and had a, a very nice interview. And then they offered me a job and I went, okay, I'll take that. And I went into my boss in solar and I said, you know, I'm, I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to take this job in indoor air quality. He said, well, that might be good, but is there any way we can convince you to stay? And I said, can you match their offer? Which was more than double what I've been making in the solar world. And he said, have a great career, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) So I left very amicably and so forth. And and it was a great transition. So I jumped in at Lenox, worked on several key projects there. The big one was I found a photocatalytic oxidation technology out of University of Florida. 
And I went into my boss and said, I got to go down to Florida, but I'll go on the weekend so it's cheaper flight-wise and I have a place to stay because my in-laws live there. He said, oh, you just want to go down and see your in-laws. And uh, I said, no, there's this technology. I got to check it out. And since I've learned, you know, go see it yourself, I did that. And turned out it was fascinating technology. And within less than two years, we had introduced it in the marketplace. It was multi-million dollar sales per year on that. It's still out there. And we tested that every possible way we can. I even went to Saskatoon to find a a chamber wow. that was at five, you know, less than 5% relative humidity to test it for byproducts and so forth. We did a lot of research on it. And I can attest with all the testing we did that you can make a safe photovoltaic oxidation technology. You have to design it right. You got to make sure the light hits the titanium dioxide. You got to use the right titanium dioxide. You might want to put some things in to capture and reduce any ozone that might be around or any formaldehyde that may come out. You want to make sure that less bad stuff comes out than goes in. And we did that with tremendous amount of, we got a chemistry lab, a consulting chemist, and set up duct work and and uh, put in all sorts of chemicals at the front end, measured them at the back end. We did chamber studies. We did field trials at homes and so forth. It was a very successful IAQ product at its time. It's done very well. And I did a, had a lot of opportunity to do some really interesting work at, at Lenox. But then one day in 2011, they decided they no longer needed my services or those of 90 other people one day. So I had been just about done with all my coursework for my PhD at that point. And it actually was a good thing because I was under the naive impression that one could work full-time and get a PhD at the same time. That is not correct. <laughs> and uh, so within 24 hours, I was research assistant at University of Texas at Austin and testing induct air cleaners for ozone generation, which led to some changes in the rules in California on ozone with Barwa's help, gone to uh, requiring UL 2998 and ASHRAE 621. And then I was able to get that into ASHRAE 622 last year as well. So the University of Texas IAQ group has been pretty active in enhancing the IAQ standards throughout yeah. North America and beyond. Was uh, Richard Corsi, you were must have studied under him. I did. I did. Rich was my major professor. Ian Walker was on my committee. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Attila uh, Novoselic. I noticed yeah. you, you got on your LinkedIn profile, Daking Comfort. I guess yes. Matter expert. So Daking, let's face it, are primarily known for split systems, VRF systems, VRV systems. Right? right. I'm in the business. I'm supposed to know stuff, right? I had no idea they had an IEQ subject matter expert. So what's that all about? How's that working? Well, while I was working on my PhD, I'd worked with a company called Dust Free. And I'd worked with Dust Free for several years at, at Lenox. They made all the frames and so forth for high-efficiency filters at Lenox. And I got them to do the UV light. Back mm-hmm. in 99, I, I went to Greg Burnett at Dust Free and said, I want this UV light, the highest capacity UV light. You'll zap everything. And I'd gone around all the folks that made UV lights. And they said, you're nuts. You can never make something that intense. And Greg went, I think I can. So we did, and we put it out. The idea was we were going to put this in the duct and fry every virus that went by, right? <laughs> well, we tried that, and no, it didn't work. 
the viruses went, you know, and they just went <laughs> right by the UV light and it didn't kill yeah. them. It was great on the coil, but it was way too much energy on the coil. You didn't need that much. It was very effective keeping the coils clean. But we did learn that, yeah, you can dial down the, uh, the intensity of the UV light in, on, on surfaces is great. So follow on story to that. Three years ago, uh, the big boss at Daikin said, I want a COVID killer. I said, okay, I'll get you one. So Greg and I worked on four foot long, 110 watt UVC lamps, put nine of them in a 24 by 24 by five foot barrel. It was a barrel. (laughs) And sure enough, that was a COVID killer. And it fried the viruses going through. It was very effective. But, you know, it was thousands and thousands of dollars and just not practical. (laughs) Yes. So to remove uh, viruses and small particles, I recommend high-efficiency mechanical filters. They're much more cost-effective, and they work great. So after about 20 years, we actually did get our fry-on-the-fly UVC light, but it just wasn't cost-effective. This fascinates me, right? So I have this fantasy of building my own house, and it'd be like, like heat recovery, VRF, cooling, radiant heating. So you sounds like you are very evolved in your thinking on IEQ. So what is good practice? Like there's blue sky this, right? There's a slab on grade site. You can build what you like there. How is that going up and what's in it to keep the IEQ? I actually had that house designed. And I was going to... I was going to build it in uh, Magnolia, Texas, right. and it was going to be about 2,000 square feet, and it was going to cost me 250000 bucks. So after $80,000 of architectural work and developed detailed guidelines and protocols and so forth, we went out to the builders and they said, you know, $750,000 to start with, and that's if you take off all the porch and the garage and everything else, and you just got this little tiny box. And we went, oh, yeah, that can't happen. <laughs> so. What I, what I recommend is, is start with inert products in your building. Right. So you want to build it so it it's, uh, has good humidity, resilience, and so forth. It's, it's, it's not going to fall down. It's not going to rot. The bugs aren't going to eat it. Uh, mold won't grow on the surfaces. Oriented strand board is the bane of my existence because of the missions of formaldehyde, which I did a 500-page dissertation on working with Oak Ridge National Labs. Instead of oriented strand board, I would use magnesium oxide board. It's very inert. You can literally take a blowtorch to it and nothing happens. You can stick it in a bucket of water with mold spores. They won't grow on it. It's really very inert. I like reflective roof materials so that you have a lower cooling load. I like external insulation on outside of the roof so that you you don't have condensation Issues on that, I like to be able to do at least one air change an hour of ventilation air, which I would put, and I did on, on a subsequent house that we built and then rehab for a lot less than $750,000. I had HEPA carbon filtration of all the incoming air. I also had energy recovery ventilators for energy efficiency. I had highest efficiency VRV technologies to get very high SEER ratings. Heat pumps, of course, so there's nothing that burns in the house, no gas. My environmental doctor way back when said, you got to get rid of all the gas in your house. And I had, I had purchased a glow core furnace that was closed combustion in the early oh 90s. Oh, my gosh. The most, the, the most efficient. 
don't ever buy the first off. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, never, wait a couple of generations. But anyways, I said, I have closed combustion. I don't have a gas stove. I have an electric stove. I did have a gas dryer. And, and one time I went in, I slumped again. And he said, okay, humor me. Just get rid of your gas dryer. It will be cheaper than coming to see me one time. <laughs> so I did. And I had a tremendous step function improvement on my health. And he was so excited. He said, okay, now get rid of that gas furnace. We argued about that gas furnace for eight years. Finally, <laughs> we had gone on vacation to Colorado in the wintertime and come back. I stepped one foot inside the house and fell flat on my face. And there was a minute gas leak. The gas company came out and they said, we don't even have to shut off your gas because this is less than a pilot light but it was causing me significant problems. So at that point, I said, okay, he's right. You know, we, we put in the heat pump and, and dug up the, the gas light on the property. <laughs> and so there's no gas coming into the house. And then I had to tell him that he was right. And that, you know, after eight years of struggling, <laughs> with that, that, was, that was the worst part about it. But so no gas in the house. Gas stoves are one of the, are, from my perspective, the biggest source of contaminants in a home especially when I cook because right. I burn stuff. You want to make sure you have a kitchen exhaust. It vents to the outside. You want it as big as possible and as low as, as you can get it. Then you, of course, want to have makeup air so you don't depressurize the house. So my makeup air, in the, in the last house I had, uh, HEPA and carbon filtration makeup air linked to the fan on the exhaust. In a previous house, I told my wife, you got to turn the exhaust on. She says it's too loud. So. I said, you got to turn it on or I'm going to make it turn on and spend money, you know, by when you turn on the electric stove, it will turn on the um, exhaust fan. Exhaust she didn't want to do that. Yeah. So, so she learned to turn it on. So from a humidity point of view, 40 to yes. 50% RH is a sweet spot? That's, that's what I like. However, depending where you live, you know, if you're in the north where it gets really cold, that may be too high. I know of, of the work on saying that 40% is the new 20% uh, percent humidity, that 40% is best. But there are yeah. some buildings that are designed for that, and then there are some that are not. And if you put 40% and it's 20 below outside, your walls will rot, as I'm yeah. sure Robert has seen a few of those. We normally say 30, we actually, some people say 30 to, to uh, 60. I typically say 35 to 55, plus or minus 5% on either side. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. that allows you in the colder climates to go down to 30%, provided that the construction can deal with that, right. or up to the higher value. So it gives you some wiggle room. And anybody that's had any practical experience, you, you can try all you like to hold 40%. But it's relative. That word is really important because you can go one part of the room and it's not 40%, or you can go towards the outside and it's not 40%. Right. So yeah. it's 40% wherever the humidistat is controlling yeah, right. it, right? Having that 5% on either end gives you wiggle room. And you're right. I mean, when you get into the colder climates, you can design and build buildings that can get up into that 40% without worrying about condensation. But even triple pane, argon-filled glass, you know, at minus 40 degrees, which F or C, it's the same. That's why they call it friggin' cold. And, and that's a Joe Steberg line, by the way. I stole that from him. You're going to start to see moisture condense on the glass. It's just, you can get down to 55, 60 degrees surface temperatures, right? So, yeah. I mean, in Denver and Alberta, you're getting that regularly, right? Well, we don't get 40 below, but yeah. Robert would. Yeah, yeah. we do. Mm, that's, interesting. that's why I'm down here in Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> people really do not understand the source of these contaminants and the health issues that their own home is right. inflicting on them, right? And yeah, one of the other things I did in the last home was I had ventilation air in every room of the house. It was separate from the uh, heating and cooling ducts. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, your colleague, Ian Walker, he and I did a, really an impromptu interview, and it was captured on videotape, and we talked a lot about ventilation systems, particularly kitchen ventilation systems as well. And, you know, Ian asked about, like, because in Canada, we're required to ventilate on a room-by-room basis. Where in the U.S., ah. it's not, it's, you know, and I got to tell you, when you go into a house that's properly designed with proper heating, proper ventilation, it is a different animal altogether. It, you walk into these spaces and again, using your advice in terms of inert materials, natural materials, I got to tell you, like, and people need to experience it to appreciate it. They are different buildings completely. They sound different. They smell different. They feel different. They're just, they're just different. Yep. And and they feel healthy. It's you know, it's like when you it's like when you eat a really good healthy meal. Yeah, and you, if you know do it's, that consistently, yeah. right? The same thing happens in a space. Your envi- indoor environments, you can have healthy indoor environments. Now, although it's not something that you're digesting, your body is a sensory system. It picks it up. It knows when it's a good environment, when it's a bad environment. So look, the three of us know more about this than the average bear. Let's be fair, right? So how bad this view mark? How bad? Is the average home? It's awful, in my opinion. Would you agree with uh, that? Yes, and th- that's a real challenge. And that's yeah. you know that's that's one of my missions now is to help people improve the environment in which they live. And one of the ways we did that at Daikin, it took me six years, several years before I I came there, and I was consulting with with Daikin, and then got my degree and came on board full time. But we designed a room temperature catalyst to help remove ozone and formaldehyde. Yeah. My dissertation showed that formaldehyde, of course, is the, the biggest chemical contaminant in home, and it's correlated with all the other uh, challenging yeah. contaminants of concern. So if you get that right, it, it works real well. And we have a, a MERV-15 uh, filter. So MERV-15 filter with room temperature catalyst is a high-technology approach to improving PM2.5 and the chemicals. We have better ventilation. We have induct air monitors for temperature, relative humidity. <laughs> Right. and uh, VOCs and PM particles to help you control those in your home. And all those technologies are rapidly evolving and we're learning more and more. And one of Daikin's top five missions is to become the leader in indoor air quality. And, you know, it, it's a snowball forming, but Daikin's the world's largest HVAC company. And once the snowball goes down the hill, it becomes an avalanche. So we're moving forward with IAQ and we'll see how far we get. It needs someone like with the footprint that they can have to do this. So yes. but let's talk about the cost side of this equation. So I'm all in on the health side. I understand the technology. I understand what I want to do. But there are two costs, I think, two cost premiums that have got to be addressed. One is because it's newer technology and it's high technology is expensive. And two, is there an energy penalty, energy cost penalty with all this technology? There's some energy cost penalty, but I... From my personal perspective, it's cheaper for me to pay the extra money for not only the technology, but the energy, than go see the doctor. I would much rather pay it to the electric company or the photovoltaic electric company than to a physician because they have to treat me. So that's one of the aspects. Now, the other thing is, you know, back in, I think it was uh, 2001, there was a paper that came out on the impact of indoor air quality on productivity. 
And I took that to my bosses and said, hey, you know, we got to improve the air quality in our building here because ventilation is being shut off because the world is in silos. You have the engineering salaries over here and you have maintenance over here and never the two silos should meet. So the maintenance people would shut off ventilation and they put in MERV 6 filters because that was the minimum they had to do at that time. Now we've been able to increase that to 11. But they didn't recognize that they were dumbing down the engineers by 5-10%. And the overall input for the, the company was not very good. Bill Fisk put that paper out. It was a fantastic paper. But yeah. he was out in California and university-type professor. So all those people are ivory tower. No big deal. So at the beginning of COVID, perfect timing for the new book. The book on healthy buildings came out by Joe Allen and John McComber. And I believe this is the most impactful book I have ever read on IAQ. I recommend it highly to everyone. There are two things that this group did different. One, they had a great brand, Harvard. So they have a brand on Harvard. (laughs) Two, They had a building scientist, Joe Allen, Dr. Joe Allen, on the writing it using research that he had done as well as historical research that had been done. And then they had Dr. John McComber. John McComber is one of the keys because he's an economist, a real estate economist, has done a lot of work in practice and has a large real estate portfolio, but he teaches at Harvard as well as an economist. And what they showed is if you improve the air quality, the bottom line of your company can go up by 10%. If you have a manufacturing plant and you typically keep the temperature at 80 degrees, turn it down four degrees and you'll get about a 10% boost in productivity. It's just utterly amazing. But because of the brand and having the building scientist and the economist in the same place, people listen to you and they say, wow, that's really interesting. So I have been going along, hey, Johnny has asthma Let's help Johnny out by improving the air quality. Look at a health, other than the people that have a Johnny in the bedroom that you know, has horrible asthma or has significant medical issues themselves, like myself on chemical sensitivity, nobody cares. You know, is it going to have a long-term effect in your health? Well, they, you know, that's 40 years away. Who cares? I'm not worried about that. So the health angle just doesn't work except for unique individuals. But the dollars, if you can show someone they can make money, more money by improving the air quality, they're all on board. Yeah, and so that ratio came out 1 to 10 to 100, right? So for every, I guess it's for every $100 in salary, we only spend $10 in operating costs and 1% on the energy costs. Correct. So any change, whether it's 2 or 3% on the productivity, it makes the energy look like belly button lint. Exactly. <laughs> right? So it's like people get so – and this this is actually one of my – now you're going to get me on a soapbox here. I may steal that so, line. <laughs> <laughs> there's such a myopic focus on energy, 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 energy. And, you know, Nate Adams uh, said it best. He said, energy conservation, preservation, efficiency needs to be a byproduct of achieving the indoor environmental quality. <laughs> Full stop. There's no debate in that. And I think one of the problems that we have is that so much of our engineering community has the scientific mind, the human element has slipped past them. Like they don't understand the value of human factor design and the the role that humans play in the building. But let's face it, why do buildings exist? It's because of people. (laughs) That's right. 
You know, so that's what needs to be the focus. And everything else beyond that should be a byproduct of achieving that environment. And you can do that. And we've demonstrated that in my own engineering practice over and over and over again. Is that when you, and that's what came our, our slogan. When you design for people, good buildings follow. Just take yeah. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? There's almost an IEQ hierarchy of needs. And in your book, Robert, then energy is just a byproduct. It's like the self-actualization. It's just the last one, right? You've got to meet the IQ needs first. And then the benefits yeah. fall from And that's where integrated design comes into play. Yeah. You have to understand architecture. You have to understand closure, the role that interior design. And that, again, that's another one. Like People confuse interior design with interior decorating. Those are two separate fields altogether. But they play a huge factor in IEQ that's unrecognized. And then the mechanical and the electrical. And when you understand how all of those things fit together, then the building becomes the first passive source and solution for IEQ. And then and only then should we start looking at energy systems. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Because the problem yeah. is building code is focused heavily on energy, not IEQ, right? Right. And that may be changing. I'm on the ASHRAE 241P infectious aerosol uh, task force to develop the standard by June. Right. <laughs> we had our first meeting two weeks ago. It'll be announced by the White House shortly. You know, they have a deal. The White House has a deal with ASHRAE to develop a standard on what do you have to do in a building to reduce in transmission of infectious aerosols. Because of the pandemic, just like over 100 years ago, 150 years ago or so, when the uh, water the cholera epidemic was stopped by turning off that faucet in London, and people went, oh, you know, we really need to have good, clean water. So a lot of engineering work went into that. And, and all over the world, in civilized society, we have good water standards that give you yeah. safe drinking water. We don't have that for air. And with the pandemic, I think we're moving towards that. So now, you know, 100 years plus later, people are saying, hey, you know, maybe air quality might be just as important as water quality. Yeah, or though, food, right? Same thing with or food. food. Same thing with food. Even though on a mass basis, you inhale a lot more air in a day than you do water or food. Inside, this is changing. Actually. Yeah, because you think back in London, they worked out how cholera spread using statistics, right? Turn right. that off, work. Then you had all that infrastructure, the embankment, basil jet, getting the water sorted out. I always say, you know, who saved the most lives? Plumbers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Mark, we're getting up on the end of our interview here, and I have, sure. a, I have a question for you that we usually ask a, a rapid-fire question. And my question to you is, when you look back over the last three years of misinformation related to COVID, starting with the WHO saying that it wasn't airborne, <laughs> with all of the, you know, the, and the continuation of bad mass surveys, the Cochrane Review have just come out and said that the recent mass one was full of misrepresentation and they apologize for the poor wording in the study. There have been, I think, over 250 retracted papers on the COVID, you know, commentary. The source of this is coming from people who are highly educated, but they seem to be so disconnected from reality. And as an example of that, you know, there is no debate on construction sites about N95 masks. If you're doing mold remediation, you're doing any remediation with the building, no one questions it. There's nobody outside with placards saying no N95s on this construction job. If you don't wear a mask, 
you don't come to the job site, you don't get a paycheck. It's really basic, right? Yeah. What happened? What what has gone on with all of this dialogue? Where people are these just pure academics who have no practical experience in the real world? Or are they so protective of their domain? Like what happened? It's hard to say. Part of the you know, one of the quotes about if you want to look at new technologies, don't ask an expert because they know it won't work. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it might, but they know it won't. So the experts sometimes give you problems. I mean, the, the fact that the SARS is airborne, I mean, Hugo Lee showed that back in 2001 or two. You know, it, it was clear. Uh, and so SARS-CoV-2 uh, instead of SARS-CoV-1, <laughs> yeah, it probably is airborne. And why that persisted for so long, I don't know. The mask, I still mask when I go into congregate settings, but many people don't. And, you know, I was lived in Texas until last year, and people are very militant about not having to wear masks. And even to the point that they accost you for wearing a mask, it is uh, very strange. I think a lot of this is uh, politically related and in the fracture of our society from a political standpoint, I, I think that's, that's one of the challenges, at least in the U.S. Other yeah. than that, I don't have a really good answer. The science well, is, know, is really clear from my perspective. I mean, yeah, absolutely it is. And I, you know, like, I think you, uh, myself, and probably maybe three other people were in the last ASHRAE meeting in Atlanta wearing masks. We knew that pretty much nobody at the trade part of the, of the conference was wearing masks other than myself. I went there to deliver a speech or an award ceremony. And uh, we also, and a group of us play, we get together, we jam. There's, there's eight yep. or nine of us. That, but ASHRAE, good on them, published if there was an infection if it, and where it wasn't, where they think it came from. And so we know at that conference that transmission occurred. We know it's airborne. There were many rooms in the ASHRAE meetings that had the Corsi uh, Rosenthal box. Yep. And I know, like myself, I was with those people that got transmitted or ended up sick, but I didn't because right. we had the boxes and we were wearing masks. Yep. Now, and it's tough because ultimately we're humans and I, and I do go out sometimes without a mask and it's a risk assessment. And sometimes I look back and I go, I can't believe I did, I did that. Um, but for the most part, we're we're more cautious than the average bear, and you know we've managed to stay healthy. And I don't know what else to say, but I'm just I'm still, and I will always be in shock that such a high level of knowledge can mislead the entire world down a path and try to defend it. And it's it's right. politics trumps everything, mate. It's bad. Know? But you should so start a band called the N95s and all be lined up like <laughs> We're called the psychometrics. Well, maybe that's our subset. <laughs> My quick fire question is this. If I put a gun to your head and said, right, give me the magic bullet. I'm the government. Gun to your head. Tell me one thing we can do that's going to make the most impact to move the needle here on IEQ. What is it? Increase ventilation, filtration, UV treatments to greater than six equivalent air changes an hour. Oh, I like that. Now, the pushback on that would be energy, right? Energy cost. Right. And how well has that worked over the last three years of the pandemic? So how's right. that working out for you? That's <laughs> what you're saying, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the energy, let's call it 
the energy cult within Ashray, right? There's this like, oh, the energy, energy, which all goes back to the energy crisis at the end of Jimmy Carter's brain, right? Do you think there's a chance of moving that around? Because that cohort are aging out now, right? They're all retiring. So there's probably an opportunity now to shift that block towards more IEQ, less energy focused. I was one of those folks. I worked with Habitat for Humanity in Lafayette, Indiana, you know, 40 years ago. We put in a super insulated house, triple pane windows, 12 inches of uh, insulation and so forth. It was a 1,400 square foot house. But we didn't do ventilation. So that was not good. Yes, I am one of the optimists that actually think we will have improved air quality because of the pandemic. I've been in indoor air quality well over 20 years now, and I didn't get a whole lot of calls except from people with kids with asthma. Over the last two years, yeah, yeah, over the last three years, it's rung off the hook. It's like, okay, you've you've done this for 20 or 25 years, and now somebody says you're an expert in it. So, wow. You know, the, the biggest difference I found with my PhD is I, I don't know that I know a whole lot more going through the PhD, the more experiences. I have that doctor be in front of my name and people listen to what I say now. It yeah, just it gives you credibility, it, right? It's mind boggling because I said the same thing 20 years ago and no one would listen. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to do that because I call myself a doctor of money to my children. So yeah, that's, that's great. <laughs> I really do think that there is going to be a change. There has been a change and there yeah. will be continue to be a change to improve indoor air quality and indoor environmental quality, especially in commercial buildings, offices. Offices have to differentiate themselves now because people aren't working from offices anymore. They've got to show that they've got good environmental quality in those buildings to bring in people that are going to rent their space. So from the commercial places, schools, hospitals, offices, all of those places, manufacturing is going to catch on because they want to increase that bottom line by up to 10%. So they will improve because it's harder to get employees. So if you can work with 10% less employees and have the same productivity, that would be pretty good. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I am uh, (laughs) someone who's passionate about indoor air quality, but as Adam knows, I also want to make sure that our listeners and and people that follow us on the program, that when we use the term IEQ, we're talking about all of the sensory systems. And so sound, light, thermal, air quality, vibration, odors, all of it. And I have said since the beginning of COVID, when I started to see the the focus on the IEQ, that I hope that the world of architecture and property development doesn't forget about sound. And doesn't forget about thermal because when you go back and you look at the post-occupancy evaluation, sound is still the number one complaint, followed by thermal comfort, followed by air quality, lighting, and these other and these other aspects. So it's really important people understand that there's no doubt about it. IEQ is incredibly important, but when it comes to complaints in buildings, sound is the number one complaint still. And part of that was actually is related to indoor air quality because in the in the process of solving IEQ solutions, we moved away from fabric-based materials gone to more harder materials and so yeah. the sound absorbent qualities have you know gone from some of these buildings so yeah I, I, that's my only solution it's called DOAS like low velocity like displacement ventilation with radiant heat and cooling but the market's not really geared up to deliver it on scale that's the problem well and when you look at architecture particularly buildings that have won many awards or have been recognized mm-hmm. in the publications whether it's the Asher High Performance Magazine or the AIA Awards 
a lot of those buildings are designed around people. They have DOS systems, dedicated outdoor systems, radiant heating, cooling, uh, natural ventilation. A lot of those buildings have windows that can actually open up. Tall buildings, mm-hmm. Manitoba Hydro Building, I think it's 28 stories. Every every space has operable windows in it, you know. So the buildings exist, and they're demonstrating. The one in Colorado at the uh, at the uh, research facility, the RSF building, you know, is another good example. Yeah. You know, with DOAS, radiant, natural ventilation, displacement ventilation. It's so we know what works. And it's just really a matter of wrapping it up. To close this out, I think the only way is for people like yourself, Mark, to be advocates for changing building code. Because let's face it, the only way to get changes is with the hammer of the building code. The building code is the hammer of the gods, right? It's supposed to be anyway. So, you know, that's where it's got to be. We've got to get IEQ into building code, in my opinion. So I'll leave that with you, Mark. Put it on your to-do list. Let me know. <laughs> it's already there. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Joe Biden, gonna need a meeting. <laughs> anyway, listen, Mark, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed that chat. This is such a hot topic for me in my fantasy new building that I'm going to build one day and move into. So this was perfect. I've made some great notes here. I shall be tuning my uh, owner's project requirements for my next build. <laughs> Wonderful. It's been a real pleasure. Always enjoy talking about indoor air quality. Take care. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it, man. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you passionate about the built environment? Do you want to learn from the industry's most inspiring, intelligent, and accomplished professionals? Then the companion to this podcast, Wisdom of the Property Crowd, is just the book for you. From Edifice Complex Podcast Interviews, this book distills the critical thinking, insight, and ideas of some of the property industry's most accomplished and respected practitioners. Each chapter is a synopsis of an hour-plus interview, capturing the takeaways and insights, including diagrams and images, to help explain concepts and ideas. There's also a brief bio about the interviewee and a QR code linked to the podcast episode for those that want to explore further. These are the mentors you wish you had in college. Wisdom of the Property Crowd by Adam Muggleton. Available on Amazon worldwide. And now, back to the show. I'm glad we got Mark on, for sure, right? He has such a great story, and he's enthusiastic, and he's passionate, and he's funny, and he's just, you know, for those kids that are in school right now trying to figure out what you want to do, and you're in an engineering or architectural college or whatever, something like that, like, there's a guy, like, look at what he did. I mean, the time frame that he, he got kicked out of university. <laughs> Who gets no, kicked out? No. <laughs> I, love, I love that story. But he never quit. He was always moving forward, and that's inspiring in itself. The takeaway there is, and people need to know, so everyone thinks it's like a, there's a sequence and a line, right? It goes, I go to high school, I go to university, I get my math in there, yeah. No, no, it's normally a zigzag, right? So <laughs> he, like me, flunked out, and there's a redemption story there, right? I came back. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. You know, he... Getting your utter man going and doing a PhD at 50. Kill me yeah. now. I cannot, <laughs> could not do that. Man. Tip of the hat for that. 10 years plugging away at that. My goodness. 10 years, Ooh. but he did it. And that's the inspiration, right? Yeah. Just never give up. And that's what makes Mark interesting because he has this academic world, but he has the practical side too. But he's also lived it, he's lived his knowledge. You know, so he's not somebody that's teaching from a book or describing how people should learn from a book. He's lived it. His day to day life is about 
being acutely aware of his uh, surroundings. And he has the academic and the practical skills to back it up. So, you know what? There, there was a couple of really good insights for me there. One is that the analogy of IEQ and taking it back to what happened with water cleanliness and water standards, yep. right? that yep. is a really good insight. Because I think 100 years from now, people look back at this time and go, what were they thinking with uh, how they built these houses and let people live in these places? You know, it's like us looking back at a dirt hut. Yeah. Going, how did people live in these things, right? I think that is going to really happen. And that was a great analogy. Because once people understood the connection between disease and water, it got sorted out, right? Yeah. You know, when you think about pasteurization, yeah. right, the whole process of pasteurizing yeah. food, you know, and it's like everybody gets up every day and takes a breath of air, right? <laughs> they go get up and they go to the bathroom to use water and it's clean, like in the developed world. They go to their fridge or their cupboards and the food has been gone through a test standard. Yeah. Right. And the only thing in that whole that whole sequence has to do with the air. Like, hello. Well, his insight <laughs> was as well, it's the thing we consume the most, right? Of all the things we're talking about, water, food standards, energy, air, air quality is we're like fish in a fishbowl. We yeah. don't know we're in water, right? You know, yeah. but it's the thing we use. The most, yeah, it gets almost the least attention. It's weird. So, you know, I love that. And the other takeaway for me was how important IEQ is, right? So because of his health issues, I mean, he's obviously super sensitive to it, right? But those things are still happening to everyone. They're just the sensitivity is not there, right? So it's not like we're not being slowly made ill, right? You know, it's this is where politics comes in, though, right? So... I was made aware of the problem of gas-fired stoves on when we interviewed someone before on our podcast. And since Miller. then, I've trained everyone in the house. I want that fan on, that exhaust fan on full whenever anyone turns a thing on, right? We're doing that. But, you know, next house, I'll probably have an induction cooker, right? How many people know that? Not and many. Politics is they're making it a political issue. This is the big problem we have in Western society is like calling the – the climate emergency, the climate emergency, gives people a way out. Because who can fix climate? Only God, right? But really, it's uh, the shit we throw in the sea emergency and the shit we waste emergency. So this labelling is just wrong. And now yeah, we're, in, we're moving towards labelling a LEM versus us situation with gas, right? Gas heating, maybe it's good. We've got to phase it out. But, you know, the gas cooker, all you've got to be saying is this ain't great and over time we should probably move to electric. It's not like you must do it or I will kill you type thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The messaging is so fucked up. And <laughs> <laughs> wrong. Politics, it, absolutely, yeah. I don't know. I think politicians have decided we're all stupid and they're probably right. But, you know, we can't, <laughs> we can't handle the truth, right? Just give it to us straight and let's make some decisions here. But you've yeah. got to give us the, the why, not just that we say, right? Yeah. It comes down as like, you know, the hammer of Thor. We say no more gas cookers. Not, you should think about that gas cooker because X, Y, and Z, right? That's what you really need. And these are the benefits of not having that and having electric, right? That's all it needs. I mean, one of the things that's going to happen here, sorry, there's a light behind me, the sun's, yeah. sun's showing up in, in Mazatlan. Yeah, one of the things is that, you know, the advent of the internet, and particularly during COVID, people yeah. got online and they did a lot of homework. And if you got the right homework, yeah. then, you know, you made some good decisions. And I think we're going to see that. And then the work that 
you know, the Mark Cree Jacksons of the world are doing, you know, we'll see that have an impact. And of course, some of the other people that we've had on over the show over the last few years, I think we'll see a change. I'm with Mark. I'm somewhat optimistic. Yeah. It's a long road to hoe for sure. So, man, the key is getting IEQ embedded in building code. Yep. As a metric. That is the absolute key here. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's a political game. But that starts with ASHRAE. See, ASHRAE are the, are the people who can move the needle here, right? The right people in ASHRAE speaking to the right people in government and the DOE. You know, that is the way it moves. And that, yeah, that and that's happening, right? Yep. You know, as Mark said, like there's a dialogue going on, right? And that's yeah. the important part. So, And if that happens at a political level with the U.S. government, yeah, that can have consequences throughout the influence that that government has around the world. Yeah, And hopefully Canada will be next to do that. Well, the ASHRAE codes are embedded in a lot of, even by secondary specification, embedded into a lot of projects, right? So getting the ASHRAE standards done and the building codes done is really the big step that's needed, in my opinion. Well, and, that's the ch- and that is the challenge, is that, you know, the standards stand alone until the codes adopt them or they make a requirement. So thou shalt follow ASHRAE standards 62.1 or 62.2 or SSP or 55 or whatever it is, the standard that they're – so it only gets power when it's given power. Yes. Yeah, it goes to – As you said, that's right. It's got to be anointed. And and as you said, it's – the codes are it. That's that's where it's going to happen. That's where it happens. As you said, right? The, the maximums become the minimums in code. So that's where you got yep. to put them, right? Absolutely. i got to say, you're looking very uh, godlike right now. The, the sun is shining. <laughs> you. you look like you're dropping the truth here. <laughs> so we should probably wrap on your godlike status now. So right. I shall see you on the next one. All right. Yeah, I'm cheering, man. Right. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.